0: podcast listeners and welcome to this edition of Pregnancy Help Podcast. I am delighted to be welcoming uh, Michelle Marsh with us today uh, to speak a little bit about her program and some of the things that she has learned along the way. We're really excited to have you, Michelle. Thanks for jumping in.
1: Well, greetings everyone. Um, As she said, my name is Michelle Marsh, and I'm the Director of LifeHouse Crisis Maternity Home here in Springfield, Missouri. LifeHouse is a 24-7 residential transitional housing program for homeless pregnant women age 18 and older and their infants and young children under the age of 5. So here at LifeHouse, residents receive safe shelter food prenatal and post delivery health education comprehensive individualized case management counseling individual and group life skills education including budgeting assistance with transportation continuing their education finding employment and housing and we hope that that all contributes and results in improved pregnancy outcomes for both mom and infant, a reduction certainly in homelessness and poverty, and a reduction in child abuse and neglect for the high-risk population that we serve. So LifeHouse is a relatively young program. We're only six years old as of this last December, right after Christmas. Over, se- Congratulations over se- on your anniversary. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Over 60% of our residents are considered chronically homeless, and many are second and third and now, unfortunately, fourth-generation families that have been living in poverty and experiencing homelessness. And so because of that, um, and because we're a place that our individuals are homeless and have you know prolonged periods of time with that issue, they also have health histories that are extensive. So they come to Livehouse with poor physical, dental, mental health because they've had years of little or no health care and years of abuse. So over 70% of our individuals that are here at LifeHouse, they have histories of domestic violence and addiction, um, with many of them using drugs during their pregnancy prior to entering LifeHouse. Most of our ladies enter LifeHouse in their second or third trimester, although they can come any time during their pregnancy. And last year, in reference to what I just commented on, last year in 2019, there was actually an increase in our um, residents, the percentage of our residents that had um, drug addictions during their pregnancy and certainly before. So it was up to 79%. of our residents had histories of substance addiction last year and we all know um, you know certainly LifeHouse and other places assist women in getting treatment and staying sober so here at LifeHouse that actually has turned out to be one of the things that we do for not all certainly but many of our ladies and as you know and everyone else would know on this call this is especially important during pregnancy so as I mentioned women come to house at various times during their pregnancy and they can stay here for up to a year following the delivery at no charge while they continue to work towards self-sufficiency. So really that means is that um, even though we don't charge them anything, they do agree to actively participate in their program and honor what we call agreements and expectations. So all we ask is that they are active participants in doing the things that they tell us they want to do when they come here and also the things that we need. Um, to do any of us as individuals, whether you're um, living in a a sheltered environment or any other environment, there's certain things we need to do. So on that note, everybody gets a job, saves money, finishes school, and much more. That's where a lot of our classes come in. We also assist them, you know, moving into their own housing. And once they do, we help them um, find affordable, safe housing and also help them in many ways to provide at least most of their furnishings. So that leads us to the next phase of what we offer here at LifeHouse. It's almost kind of a program of its own, although there's a continuance from residential to what we call aftercare. So after they complete their time in residential, which could be that year after the baby's born and a few of the ladies will move out sooner, But if they've done the things they need to do, they have the opportunity to move into what we call our aftercare program. And in aftercare, um, they can be in aftercare for uh, for two years, which is certainly a long time. But in aftercare, case management and actually the same case manager will follow this individual, and support services continue. So in aftercare, what that means is that they have access to case management counseling, health services, resource connections, and a lot of other, you know, lifehouse house-specific opportunities like the classes and sometimes donated items we can still provide for the individuals um, in aftercare. Basically, aftercare is designed to meet a gap, something that's been identified probably since the beginning, but more um, consistently in recent years, and that's that a lot of times we help people up to a certain point but then they're kind of left on their own and they don't have that opportunity with some support system to help them stabilize. And that's really what aftercare is designed to do. So, you know, its primary goal is to promote stability and independence and ultimately assist um, these individuals, the ladies that we serve um, to help prevent them from returning into homelessness. So, You know, certainly I could give examples, and I'm sure many of you could think of some. But even in aftercare, there's accountability as they don't come by and just get things. They still see their case managers, they're still um, working towards certain goals, and though they can access services if they have certain issues they become more and more independent and there's expectations for them to a good example would be not very long ago somebody had some tire trouble. Well we didn't want her to miss work. We didn't want her to get messed up at childcare. We didn't we knew her funds were limited. So we assisted a third of what she needed, a donor was able to assist us with another third, and her part of doing the things she needs to be able to do on her own completely at some point was that she contributed a a third. But yet, you know, if she went a couple of weeks without a car, without, you know, doing what she needs to do at her job, you know, she could easily lose a job, and then that spiral begins over and over again with something as simple as needing tires. And that's something that many of us take for granted, even though we know that that expense is not always easily met. But for most of us, we know that that's something doable. Or we have others in our lives who can assist us when we're challenged at different times. But because, you know, when I talked about all the history of Our Ladies here, most of them really don't have um, positive relationships when we meet them. And sometimes they're pretty dangerous relationships Now, I will tell you that some of the ladies do reunite with family members who are, for whatever reasons, you know, um, they lost those relationships with family, and sometimes that's definitely easy to understand on both sides. So it's a non-judgmental environment. So they do reunify sometimes with children who are living elsewhere. We have reunifications here, and they definitely reunify with family members. But I will say that a lot of our ladies, they really... Don't have family members that um, that it would be positive for them to reunite with, i.e., abusers, etc. So, kind of leave you know that piece on that note. It's important for you to know that Life House. When I talk about the services we provide, we have um, two full-time case managers. They're both social workers. We have a full-time nurse, a part-time licensed professional counselor. Full-time live-in staff, and we actually don't use the house mother model. I'm often asked that. We use a different model, but she does live here. Part-time cook, and on-call staff, and, of course, additional support staff. And we utilize, thankfully, many, many wonderful volunteers. We can accommodate up to 19 women and their infants and children. And I'll just you know, reflect a second on the on-site part. So if you could see us, we literally... Most of the offices are literally across from the dining room and next to the kitchen. The other offices are downstairs next to the community room and the laundry room. So we just, we don't see our residents just once a week or once a month. You know, we literally live with them. So there are multiple interactions and encounters. And I think that's partly um, what is a positive about our program here.
0: Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of uh, different multifaceted, you know, um, things going on and yeah, how exciting. I know you're a part of a bigger organization, too, which you can tap into those resources and connections and um, uh, what a blessing to those women as well. Yes, Um,
1: yeah. Yeah, LifeHouse is actually a program of Catholic Charities of Southern Missouri. So Catholic Charities is certainly an old ministry, but Catholic Charities of Southern Missouri for Catholic Charities is relatively young. We're celebrating our 10-year anniversary, so we're pretty young for Catholic Charities. And kind of on that note, um, that's where, um, when we were visiting before, I had mentioned that we have um, multiple offices across 39 counties in Southern Missouri so for us um, it's a lot of um, just there are a lot of needs 10 of those counties are traditionally the poorest counties in Missouri and just geographically it takes six hours plus to go from our western office most western office to our uh, most eastern office so it's just a lot of needs and a lot of territory to cover along that in that regard yeah
0: my goodness yeah what a huge region. Um, I understand that you recently pursued accreditation, which is uh, a big deal, and received accreditation. So uh, congratulations on that. That's a Thank that's you. a great accomplishment. Thank um, you. I know some of our homes um, at least consider it or think about it. Can you just tell us really briefly um, you know uh, what accreditation was like for you and and why you chose to pursue it? Oh certainly. Well, the Council on Accreditation
1: is one of the agencies that provides accreditation for nonprofits. So what it is really basically, it's a formal evaluation of a program or organization against best practice standards. So the accreditation process, it provides like a framework for organizations to Sometimes begin for others to continue to improve or and offer evidence-based best practices that support their clients and local communities. So it is a huge endeavor um, and that I think maybe, you know, I don't want to say scares, but maybe intimidates you know people a little bit. It does take time. Typically, I think the average time, the amount of time that it takes to work through the accreditation process, is about eighteen months to two years. And so, um, what you're doing really is looking at, um, depending on how your program is desi- designed, certain standards of care. So, an example would be that um Catholic charities, all of Catholic charities of southern Missouri receives accreditation. So there are things like administration, HR, ethics, all those kind of things that you know reach across all programs. But specifically for Lifehouse, we had to meet the the standards that were more Um, specific and applicable to the type of work that we do here at LifeHouse. And so we met and actually excelled, I'm pleased to say. We have a wonderful team here in the standards for pregnancy support services, shelter services, and behavioral health services. So I would tell you that it was a lot of work, but in some ways it wasn't that hard because they are the things that we all are either doing or know we need to be doing and want to be doing it it just um, you know it's all scheduled out and you have to instead of saying oh I know I need to redo that policy and procedure or yes we do that but I need to get it down on paper then it kind of you know it's that driving force to meet your deadlines that yes I need to get this done so consequently when you're done it's wonderful <laughs> because you really, you know, yes, really, you've really kind of, you know, put your feet to the ground and said, yes, we do this. We're doing a great job. I love what we do, but definitely there's no agency in existence that can't improve. And so, you know, you have to read a lot of material and go, oh, well, that does apply to us. Maybe I should give that some thought or no, you know, maybe not, or maybe I don't understand, so it's a it's a great educational process, so I would say that for some, maybe it's not quite the time, and there is a fee involved as well for others, um they probably put it off and maybe need to talk to some agencies, and we did. We visited with several agencies. Um, and kind of ask their thoughts on it, and there are classes that they help educate you in that process. So um, it's a at least, you know, delving into if you if you have that desire. And I think for us, you know, you don't have to do it, and you don't get any extra money for doing it. But I think it is a driver more and more as um, grants donors, just money streams, um, become more competitive and more challenging to get, that I think it also speaks to those individuals in saying um, that we are dedicated to um, high standards of care and that, you know... We've worked through this process, so you know I think that that helps you become a little bit more competitive. And from a grant perspective, there are a few grants that you have to apply for every year. If you do have your accreditation, you can apply for that same grant every three years. And so that gives you a little less work in some ways because they know that you have already met certain standards. So they kind of give you a break on you know, applying for the same thing every year. They'll give you, you know, two years or three years to um, reapply and still provide the funding.
0: Oh, well, that is, congratulations. I know it's a huge process and a huge undertaking you have to kind of look at every aspect of your work. So, yeah, thank, yeah thanks for sharing a little bit about that. Um, yeah, and if thank folks you. ever want to explore it, I'm sure you'd be open to talking about it. yes definitely and we had people here too you know
1: not so much in life house but in the broader agency you know there was there was a lot of discussion before before not everybody was sure uh, it would it was something that we needed to undertake um and it and we talked about it for a long time before we actually sort of jumped and pursued it so so definitely we'd be happy to answer questions for anyone awesome thanks michelle
0: Sure. So I understand that you have the chance to think about growth, um, which is always an exciting organizational step, um, and that you have the chance to be doing some work related specifically to thinking about a second location and even doing that second location from scratch. So that's super exciting. Um, I know a lot of homes, you kind of have to work with, with what you get, you know, work with the opportunity that comes becomes available um, and then it's a special moment when you get to like think about what exactly do we want our home to, um, to look like. So I know you're in a great facility with your first location and it's, I'm sure it works for you in so many ways. But I was kind of curious to hear as you think about a second location and you think about being able to build from scratch, kind of what are some of the things that are going through your head? Oh, well,
1: you're, you're right. It is really exciting and a little bit daunting. <laughs> So, you know, now that we've been here um, for six years, you know, we we are kind of met our stride, so to speak, not that we aren't trying to figure out things and improving, but in terms of facility, you know, we've, we've figured out, you know, most of what we can with what we have to work with here. So with this facility here, it is actually about 55, 56 years old. So it was, we are housed and thankful for it, but we are actually housed in what was formerly a Carmelite monastery. So that's where the Carmelite nuns lived for over 50 years. And they were contemplative, so really they spent more time there primarily in prayer. And during most of that time, this side of Springfield was really um, not developed. In recent years, it has been much more developed, and that's partly why they left. But um, so, if you think about that, if you think about how old the building is, you know, we one of the hardest things here in adapting was, um, you know, everybody has a computer, everybody has telephones, just the technology pieces and the wiring. We are basically in a really sturdy, wonderful concrete brick building, who, which is great. During storms, but not so great when you have to um, connect everybody to technology. So that was probably one of the hardest things when we moved here. Um, they had one phone, and because they were minimalists and not interested that much in sort of the everyday going on, you know, activities of daily life around them. Um, they would probably just have one phone if they were still here now. So that was kind of one of the big challenges here. And storage, they were minimalist, so storage has been limited. And it was built for sisters, nuns, and not for children, so we've got small children. We've had to adapt a lot of safety places, you know, gates, and we have stairs, and still work with fire code. So although we love this place, and I'll tell you honestly, we have 11 plus Beautiful acres and an amazing garden The the um, girls and staff and also volunteers help us with. But we're thrilled to be able to build a second life house. So, you know, a couple of minutes ago, I mentioned that we were spread from essentially in Missouri. If you would look at a map of Missouri, the southern part, you would see Joplin, which some people are familiar with, to Cape Girardeau. On the east side, that's kind of our range. We have offices in between at different locations. Well, in Cape Girardeau, the mortality rate is very high, and it is surrounded by the highest um, economically challenged counties in the state, the poorest counties in the state, so um, even higher need than some of our other rural areas. And again, a lot of work to be done. The community is really asking for assistance. And so we'll replicate some of the things that we do here at LifeHouse, but also individualize it to fit that community and their needs and their resources. But it's such a wonderful opportunity. And, you know, we're just thrilled with this chance. In fact, Monday, um, I was on the a telephone conference call with the architect and our executive director for Catholic Charities, um, you know, working on plans. We do actually have the property, so we have a location, and, you know, finances will be huge, but, you know, things are definitely in motion. So that's when we have here at LifeHouse, the sisters, um, a shared bathroom area. So a couple of ladies share each unit and um, so that's actually worked very well. It's pretty good size, and it's very private. But having said that, you know, the new life house will have individual, you know, bathrooms connected to each bedroom. They'll be a little bit bigger. We've certainly taken the children's aspects to heart. And so we have play areas here that are perfect since we have a beautiful property. But definitely we've accounted for that, you know, moving into the new life house storage bigger pantry, you know, access, and definitely to keep in mind safety, given, you know, a lot of the histories of the ladies that we serve. Yeah, a
0: lot to think about as you do that. That's an, an exciting process. So I think for oh, yeah. giving us a glimpse, a glimpse of it. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier that um, a large percentage, I think 79%, you said, of, of the women coming into your program have significant um, addiction histories in all the things that accompany that as well. So, curious to talk a little bit about maybe some of the programmatic decisions um, that you've made. I know um, across the country, homes are definitely seeing more and more calls from women with addiction histories and are trying to wrestle with how to best serve these women. I know you're a fairly new program and that you've only been open uh, six years, but but have you seen, as you've welcomed more and more women with addiction past, have you seen any major programmatic changes? Yeah, I think... um...
1: I think part of it has to do with more subtle changes and part of it has to do with almost, you know, um, not predicting and not vision, but looking towards the future and trying to make sure that we can meet those needs and still meet the needs that we're already meeting. So I think one of the biggest challenges is that, you know, it'd be one thing if we served only ladies who had those issues and those histories then you could develop um, certainly individualized care, but um, a more uniform form program to really target certain areas. So because we serve quite a variety of ladies um, and that particular issue is on the increase, you know, we've had to really look at that. You know, what do we want to change maybe moving forward? So along that note, you know, when we've always had um, in our short, you know, six years, you know, it would be that there'd be maybe 70, 72% of our ladies involved with significant drug histories. So I'm not talking about one year, I'm talking about years and years and years. It might be five years, it might be 10 years, it might be 15 years. I mentioned that our ladies needed to be 18 and older, so we've had ladies here, just a couple of 18 year olds. Our average age runs in the mid. 20, like 26, 27. And we've had two ladies deliver in their early 40s. So quite an age range and a multiple need range. I would say that no one that has come to LifeHouse just has one, you know, major issue. There's, like I said, you know, pretty extensive. It's like critical care maternity homes sometimes, I think, with the longevity and the severity of their issues. So You know, kind of back to the substance abuse piece, so now, you know, last year we were at 79%. Well, what that tells us um, is that we need to continue to do some of the things we're doing. We work with all of our community partners, so some of the ladies have, um, like, day treatment, outpatient treatment treatment. We do drug screen here before they come and certainly random drug screens. We've always had a counselor here at Lifehouse, but we've probably, um, well not probably, we've had to develop those services a little bit more. So we have a a licensed professional counselor. So some of the basics are that everybody has certain classes. I don't think really anybody comes here with much, if any, self-esteem. So everybody has self-esteem and anger management So those are some of the relationship, you know, classes. So those are some of the basics. But then we've also had to really focus more on some of the other classes that benefit, you know, individuals with substance histories. So that's been one of those more developed pieces that will continue to develop. Everybody gets individual and group counseling here. That's part of what they agree to. And then certainly there are a few people that need, you know, additional services, like maybe a psychiatrist as well, and we'll try to make sure that they're connected. One of the things that some of you listening may not realize or give much thought to and and you really need to is that as we serve these individuals, you know, safety is critical for everyone in your building, um, staff, their residents, the children, the babies and the people that you know have, that have these histories. So a lot of things along the safety spectrum and one thing that sometimes people don't think about is that we're not talking about ladies who are pregnant and we need to help them keep track of their prenatal vitamins. We're talking about individuals who have a lot of medications that are controlled medications. So we house them, in the office, and we do lock up the controlled substances, but we are housing them for the ladies. It's more that we're taking care of them for safety purposes, so we don't want them in the rooms, we don't want the kids to get them, we don't want anybody else to try to get them. So we're housing them, but even housing them, you know, you have to keep track of them. You've got locks, you've got, you know, to keep them locked up. It's not the same as a hospital. We are not dispensing. We don't ever act like we're dispensing. We don't want to dispense. You would have somebody. You would have to have somebody um, provide oversight, which some places do do that. That's not something we're interested in or have any intention of doing. There's some medical things that we could do here. I would remind people to stay within their scope. There are a lot of things that we actually just happen to have people who are who have certain credentials. But with that, you know, with the medical pieces, we are literally you know, a mile, less than two miles from each major hospital in our community and not that far from an FQHC um, here, which is as large as a hospital. It's huge. And so there's no real reason to do some things here. So I would caution all of you to not put yourself at great risk and not provide services beyond your scope for multiple reasons. One, main one. We don't want to hurt anybody. Two, you know, there are a lot of liabilities involved when we, as we become, as we begin having more complicated circumstances and histories with individuals. So I would say, you know, please think about that. And now, you know, um, pregnant women who have um, opioid histories, one of the more recent, in recent years, you know, treatment involves um, medication-assisted treatment, and those um, medications are controlled substances as well. So, um, again, you know, there's a lot to think about and a lot involved. It's all doable, and we haven't had any big issues, but you just need to take that into consideration. And I think, you know, one thing our counselors, so if you, and I know we have a luxury of having a licensed professional counselor on site. I know, I know that's a wonderful thing, and I'm so thankful for that. But the counselor um, has also been very helpful working with the staff um, in terms of self-care, but also in terms of helping everyone understand better um, trauma-informed care. So that's not new. You know, they've talked about it a lot more probably the last 10, 12, 14 years and heavily, you know, all kinds of seminars on it heavily, you know, the last, oh, I don't know, eight years maybe. It's not new, but I think it's sometimes misunderstood. But it's a really important piece of what we need to know when we're helping individuals, not just with addiction histories, but more, um, again, you know, they've had some really tough traumatic histories and certainly a lot of the ladies that all of us would see would fall into that category. Maybe not to the extent that, you know, some of our ladies have, but definitely, you know, even in their own homes there are people with a lot of trauma or, you know, people kind of borderline and falling off the edge. So a counselor, if you have one or if you don't have one, you know, you'll need to really consider those pieces as well from a staff perspective.
0: Yeah, no, great advice. Thinking of advice, um, as a, as a wrap-up, you know, a lot of our startup housing groups um, are kind of active listeners for the podcast. So I'd love to hear your thoughts just for our startups in particular. I know you've been um, with Lighthouse since its early days. So just kind of curious to hear what advice you'd offer um, for folks that are kind of getting started in this work or maybe something that you had to learn through your own experiences, but just, just some advice uh, to give to our startups. Well, the learning began uh, the
1: moment I took the job, and probably before, <laughs> because I actually prayed a lot, because I, I was fortunate. I'm one of those people that was fortunate in that I loved the job I had before I came here. So I think it is a job, technically, but it is also a vocation. It is also a ministry. But having said that, I think that you can't forget our responsibility in terms of what I mentioned earlier, you know, quality care and standards of care. So we want everybody to have a great big heart, but we still need to maintain boundaries and still do, you know, the things that we Say we're going to do and that we're called to do. And I would say, you know, one of the biggest things that I've seen, because occasionally I do get called from people in other towns or other states, and one of the biggest things I've seen, and I would say that Lifehouse did this a little bit too. So here's a piece, I don't know if, if it's exactly advice, but I would encourage you to take the time you need before you start, before you open up. It is much easier. To make sure that all of the essential elements for your home are already in place. It doesn't mean that there aren't ongoing develop that there isn't ongoing development or there aren't ongoing ups and downs and all arounds that's that's going to be part of it. But you know you need a strong foundation and I would encourage you to work on that before you open. And I think that's because we all have this sense of urgency. I do too. So it's not unusual for people to open a maternity home without really being ready to open. You know, the needs are high. We want to help. We're pretty sure we can make it work. But again, make sure you have the time that you need. Allow yourself that time to think about what you need and develop a plan to meet those needs. Decide what kind of home you want to be. We have long, longer stays and, you know, kind of a longer program, but we'll, yeah, we're young, so we'll see where all of that leads us. If you can't do that, there are lots and lots of ways to help pregnant women and their families. We're not all designed to do the same thing. Um, and so, again, you know, short or long-term services, you know, look at your community, where you're going to build it or what facility you're taking over, or what home. So look at your your community and your community partners. And this is a big one. (laughs) Decide what you want to track in terms of data. So it doesn't seem like the most important one, and it isn't compared to some things, but it's just much easier right from the beginning. Again, you'll develop it, there'll be other needs, but more and more again, grantors, Donors, people want to know um, numbers, you know, and they want to know that whatever they're providing um, is making a difference. And to do that, you can talk about it, but really, you know, it's it, people want to see numbers. So um, I guess another really huge thing I would say, and this is like not lessons learned. I always knew this from, you know, from other things that I've done you know, through my life, but it's been especially important in this setting. So, you know, staff expectations, you know, what you expect of them, um, it's not the easiest place to work, and training is critical because sometimes we can't pay the wages. We, we pay good wages. And I bet most of you do too, but maybe not like some places. And you have to kind of, you know, really think about your training. And I think sometimes people put training and orientation on the back burner. And I would not do that. It will cause problems. And, um, you know, whatever you can do, you know, those are things that you set up too. You know, your staff, we owe it to them to train them. And also, you know, make sure that... Because we think about the things we do for our residents or clients, but sometimes, you know, the things that we need to do to help our staff and our teams be successful and be the best at what they do, um, they need training as well. And I guess, um, you know, it is expensive. So, again, you know, think about what you can do so that you don't go under. I can name, without barely even thinking, three maternity homes that didn't last very long. So, we definitely need more help in this arena. There are lots of people that need help, but, you know, just think about what you're doing. Consult others. You know, I want you to be successful and, you know, and be in it for, you know, the long run. So, think about your volunteers, too.
0: Oh, we could talk a lot about volunteers. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> um, Michelle, thank you. You've got some really great things going on. Congrats on the accreditation. On being able to think about a second home. That's super exciting. On six great years of service. So, um, and thank you for just sharing a bit about the choices that Lifehouse has made and a bit about your program. Um, it's, it's fun for others just to get a sense of kind of what's happening in other programs. So we're really grateful for your time and your expertise. Um, on being with us. Yeah, thank you very much for all that you do
1: and all that Heartbeat does. I think one of the most important things that, you know, Heartbeat and you have been instrumental in, you know, in recent years is building that community of people who work and build and, you know, are involved with who support maternity homes and, tradi- you know, transitional housing services. So, you know, there there is, as we've mentioned more than once, great need, but there are also a lot of resources and different ways to meet those needs and I think that we're smarter and better you know when we work together and try to figure out these things and share our experiences so bless you and heartbeat and thank you for all you do
0: oh thank you so much for definitely all of us together so with that we will sign off of, of this edition of pregnancy help podcast and we'll catch you next time thanks for listening to this episode of pregnancy help podcast to subscribe to future episodes, access resources related to today's session, or listen to previous episodes, visit www.heartbeatinternational.org podcast. Thanks for tuning in.